HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I'm your other half, Darren Bresnitz. We are coming to you from New York City. Down on Wall Street. Wall Street. You got to see the Oculus for the first time. I did. Food never sleeps. Am I right? Food never sleeps? Yeah. Is that a saying? I mean, money never sleeps. Wall Street. Right. But food sleeps. Maybe. We've got a good show this week. We are... Going international, first stop in the show is Paris. We have Camille Fremont, who is in town this week, who's going to do a couple of events, one with Danny from Mission Chinese on Wednesday, and one from our absolute favorite place in the world, Achilles Hill, with Lee on Thursday. She will be doing some wine pouring, she will be serving up some of the classic dishes from her wine shop called La Bouvette, which is in Paris. And she'll just be around hanging out. We had a good conversation with her about her trips to Damascus and how she got to where she is today. And you did the interview in Paris. In Paris. I guess my invitation was lost. It was lost. Uh, And then in the second half of the show, we have one of our favorites, Miss Annie Hart, playing live. Her new album came out this week. Friday. Friday. 48 hours ago. Uh, It's phenomenal. It's great. If you follow her on Instagram... You've been seeing a lot of previews of it. Of She recorded it in her basement while her kids slept. And uh, it's beautiful. It's fun. It's great. It's her, and she's going to be playing. And the kids will be here, too. Yeah, and of course, we're going to talk about her performances with Alvar Simone on Twin Peaks. Yeah, and we're going to eat a lot of pizza. ton of pizza. So here we go. Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse.
and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, coming to you from Paris, France, in a shuttered La Bouvette with chef, owner, wine server, table cleaner, <laughs> olive setter, cheese giver, slicer, slicer <laughs> Camille Fromont. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for having us here. <laughs> uh, my pleasure. It's great to have you. So you were born in Orleans uh, between two fields of wheat and poppies. Yeah, that's the poetic version. It's really nice. <laughs> uh, tell me about your childhood growing up and your, your parents and your upbringing and the kind of food that you ate. Mm, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was born in a very like simple family, just a brother, a mother, and a father, basic. Um, and food was has always been something important, but not special. I don't know how to, like to explain the difference between both. But I mean, my mother was cooking all the time. She could have spent like three days in the kitchen for like a special Saturday dinner with some friends, but she always made the same care about cooking even like fish sticks for like an easy lunch, like a quick lunch back from school. So um, I, I didn't get this like, culture of restaurant, like going out, having like some big dinner in restaurants or stuff. But the fact of being all together to share a moment around the table was more important than anything. So that, that's how it started, more than the food itself, if I could say. It was the community. The yeah. family vibes. Yeah, I've, I've never seen not waiting for my father to have the dinner together or something. We never had any like TV trails or <laughs> like that was totally forbidden. You went to school to study Oriental languages first. How did you get interested in that and, and where was the inspiration for that education? Um, that comes from a part of my family, but that I never met. My mother, grandmother, she used to live uh, in North Africa, in Tunisia and in Morocco. She used to be um, uh, how, um, a teacher like, there. And they never came back when all French people came back, you know, in France after like some trouble there. And so since I'm a child, there is some some souvenir of this part of the life of this part of my family in my house. But I've never like I never knew anything about it. So I was maybe a bit curious. Um, so I started learning like just few courses a week at um, high school, like lycée is high school. Uh, yeah, just a couple of hours a week. And that was not a very good level, but that was interesting. So this is how I started slowly. And then I just get an obsession about coming to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wondering, how can I do that to just to be sure that I won't fail in going to Paris. So I just choose the two courses, well, should I say that, um, that I can do to make sure that it's only in Paris. So Arabic was only in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so good reason or not, that was one of the reasons. <laughs> 
That's so that's incredible. That's a mix of. No, I know, but that's so incredible. I'll be like, how do I get here? And they can't say, oh, go here, go somewhere else. It's like, there's only Arabic in Paris. I must go to Paris. Exactly. But you studied for six years. Yeah. And you also went to Damascus as well as part I of the scholarship. I lived there for, yeah. And what was that experience like? Amazing. Unforgettable. Like, just opened my head in two to, like, some so different people, like, way of life, culture, food. Like, that was crazy. What were some of the food memories that you still have from being in Damascus? <gasps> the first day when I arrived, I met some people. I was in the kind of, like, small hotel where there were like only like young people traveling and I just arrived and someone brought me to the main souk like the market and there were some kind of ice creams milk ice creams very a kind of rubbery like super strange consistency like in a um, in a biscuit cone so like huge white piece of ice cream in the in the biscuit cone. Like I don't know the word in, in English. Corne, never mind. <laughs> and they were like putting in some matched pistachios. Ooh. And I don't know if it was so delicious, but I would remember that all my life. Like, wow. That's so the first thing I had. Like, that's the first thing you had. Yeah. And then I spent like a whole year eating all the time. <laughs> <laughs> And then you came back to Paris and you got your first waitressing job. Yeah, because that was uh, complicated to me to build something really... Um, um, sorry. Like really interesting with my Arabic studies. Um, well, it got you to Paris. That was the goal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But after that, like... Thinking about a real job with that, that was really complicated. And so I started having, like, yeah, this, this job in a restaurant just around the corner. What was the restaurant? It was called the Café Noir. Is it still around? Or? I think so. But uh, the owner I was working for, so 10 years ago now, they um, sold the place a couple of years ago. So mm, I don't know if it's still called a Café Noir. The place might exist. Like, but it's totally, but, but it's not the same. Probably, yeah. So I started like, just maybe three lunch a week there. That was a nightmare. That was cool, but I was so bad at it. That, and I don't know what they've seen like inside me, feeling like, we should maybe keep her, whatever. I don't know what happened, but they trusted me. And after a whole winter wondering about what I'm going to do with those studies, um, where should I go, what should I do? Because you were also training to be a bookseller at the time as well. Yeah, that was the idea I found to stop my studies and do something real, like a real job, starting something quickly. And, and, and finally, as I was talking with them about this project for the next um, uh, the next year they said like yeah we, we, we're watching you having all this like idea and this project but it's a problem for us because we think that you're made for this job so we would love you to like stay with us and I was like fuck that was not my plan <laughs> <laughs> but after thinking a lot about it, I realized that the reason why I was uh, 
waking up in the morning to work with them was really, really more interesting and fun to me than all the rest. What was so, it? What was it that you felt even in the beginning about working in the restaurant, or what was the pull, or what did you feel first thing in the morning that got you out of bed? But that was that was such a pleasure to to welcome and to give uh, some some pleasure to people, like to, yeah, that was the the, the human uh, contact. Can I say that? <laughs> that was the. The more interesting and the more enthusiastic like part of the job to me, and then I started like having a look in the kitchen and you know and and having a look at the wine because I didn't know anything about it before starting so but it was more about like people like, this uh, hospitality part of the job and you were there for a few years and then went over to mama's shelter yeah two years there and then so that was just next uh, next to the place that created the Mama Shelter so the owners like months and months before the opening they, they used to come every day for lunch to this small restaurant so this is how I met them and so this is how I finally left to work with them something totally different were they okay with you leaving for something else or was never, it like nobody is never okay. For <laughs> <laughs> Were they like leave, as like. okay as as they could be? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So no, that was totally different experience, and that was the opening. So that was crazy because they had some new ideas every day. So that was exhausting, but like really passionating. And so two years there to. And that's where you also you became in charge of the wine list, and that's where your yeah. education really picked up. Because nobody had time to care about it, so they said like, "Oh, you seem to be a bit interesting in it. You should do it." It's like, "Okay." So, what were were there any bottles or purveyors that you found then that are still carried yeah. here? Sure. Who are a couple of them? Uh, there is some maybe not exactly today on the shelves right now, but. Some guys I'm still working with, like uh, um, like Emmanuel Giboulot, François, some guys like that. And so some, sorry, some I discovered I was not working with them, but I'm still working with them today. You were there for a couple of years and then went over to Chateaubriand, and you were the second girl, yeah. only by a I week. guess I was the first one. And how did you <laughs> how did you end up at Chateaubriand, and what what year was this as well? That was in. Uh, 2010 just by chance because I left the mama shelter for another place where it has been like very complicated and it failed after just a few weeks but sometimes bad experience has some good reasons I don't think so there is no chance actually so I was passing by Avenue Parmentier, so where the Chateaubriand is, with my resume, like, in, uh, in my bag. Like, I was totally depressed because the experience had been kind of violent and unexpected, so... Anyway. Violent in what way? But because some girls, they just asked me uh, to work for them for months and months and months. So they were, like, coming every two weeks and like we want you to work with us and that was a very nice classic bistro and I was dreaming about it because 
there were all these classic parts of my job that I never uh, learned about it in a, in a kind of like school way, you know, like école hôtelière. Or, and so I was thinking that they could uh, teach that to me, and I was like so excited about this new new project. But that was a couple like very complicated relationship between them. So I arrived in the middle of like, so it's just uh, just failed. Like. So they just asked me to leave after a couple of weeks, saying like you're really not good at the job. You should do something else in your life. And I was like, what? <laughs> so so I, I knew it was not true, but it's that still was just free and it hurts, yeah. and you wonder about it. Whatever happened. So. so depressed, resume and arm, turn the corner, and there's Chateaubriand. And at the corner, there was Chateaubriand. And they were in Yaki, smoking a cigarette, like, on the sidewalk. And I was like, I've heard about it. So I knew a bit who he was, but I was not in this fooding cycle. So I had no idea about, like, World 50 best stuff, and not that much. So I had this talk. I mean, I probably gave my resume just, like, <laughs> straight away on the bar it didn't have a look at it we had like maybe an half an hour talk and and I will remember that all my life you can say like come tomorrow for a, a test like a, a train like, and <clears throat> the day after in the morning I had a message on my uh, voicemail voicemail and it's like, and don't forget about the outfit. It's a white shirt and a three-day beer. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> what the fuck is that place? But that was funny, and that, I'm sure it was nice, but I was like, so scared. <laughs> so this is how I started the day after. And every night, it didn't like, tell me anything, just come back tomorrow. Okay, come back tomorrow. During one week. And after a week, said, this guy is going to leave at the end of the month, so you can have his job if you want. I was like, um, okay, but you know. <laughs> and finally, I just like didn't say anything. There were... Um, they were finishing the renovation work and preparing the opening uh, of Le Dauphin just next door. So like, let's see what happened. So I started at Chateaubriand like that. And finally, when they opened Le Dauphin, just two months after, they asked me to go at Le Dauphin because they felt like I was, I would have been more comfortable and maybe the good person to be like in the middle of this small bar, like this crowded marble and mirror restaurant. So that's been, yeah, it has been such an experience too. We're going to take a quick musical break and then we're going to come back and talk about um, opening up La Bouvette and all the magic that happens here. We're going to play a song from the archives and we'll be back in a moment here on Snacky Tunes. Kill anyone if there's no victim, then there's no crime. 
sometimes discretion is worth a try. If you just play along, I promise we'll be fine. I so leave your hang-ups back at the door when you and I are down on the floor. So you'll know what to do about it. was it that you took from all your experience, including Lidofin and Chateaubriand, that gave you the idea or the start to open La Bouvette? Well, the Chateaubriand and Le Dauphin gave me the direction on two, sorry, uh, natural wine, but even more like, can I say craft wine? And because I've been told by someone before at Mama Shelter that she was not she's, she's been the one that changed my life and made the wine uh, become the, the only like the, the, the passion thing so um, she's really important to who me who is she? she's called Danielle Giraud and uh, she's she might be around I would say like 70 now she's a She's an old lady that always had work in wine in Paris, in the, the restaurant uh, business in Paris, selling some wine to restaurants. And the story is, if we have time to talk about it, the story is that she was working uh, since uh, a very long time with Alain Sanderens. You know this chef? He's, um, he, he died just a few weeks ago, but he has been really famous uh, for... Um, for the first thing uh, has been that he one day um, decided to get rid of his stars because he didn't want to keep going with depression and all uh, like everything you you have to. Um, sorry, I don't know how to explain that. But that's very very strong thing about saying officially I don't want my stars anymore. Like, what's a big deal when he did that? Because I, I couldn't tell you like exactly, but maybe in the thirties or some, uh, in the seventies, um, or maybe in the like early eighties. So he's known for that first, and then he has been one of the first chefs caring a lot about food and wine pairing. So this is how Daniel, this woman, came because Alain Sandorin, so this chef was consulting for the, the menu at Mama Shelter. So he arrives this way, and so she arrives with him. This is how I met her. 
and and she was already like uh, caring a lot about like craft, but natural or not natural was not a deal for her. So I've been told this way, like uh, uh, having my first uh, poignée de raisin at Gramenon, meeting Emmanuel Giboulot the day after, but also going to De Renoncourt, uh, new wines, like spring tasting, the day after. So that was not about like natural, there were no like church, <laughs> that was just good thing made by people with conviction and, and a vision of doing it well. So I tried to keep that a bit. But for sure, when I m really met natural wines in Chateaubriand and Le Dauphin, it has been really something. And for sure, my test went to that more than the rest. So now there is... Only, but I still don't like that much talking about natural wines. Right. I think the but thing that I read about you that I like is you like th you pick wines that you adore. Yeah, because I couldn't like sell you any wine that I'm not like totally in love with it. So, so yeah, that that's the, the the first reason to pick it up and and to share it here for sure. And Labavet was a former tea shop, right? Yeah. Uh, what is the story behind it, and, and how did you get it? The story is that it's a space I was dreaming about for years and years. This particular space? Yeah, this you particular knew it? Yeah. Oh. How did you <laughs> come across it? I was living it? in the neighborhood, okay. passing by um, often, and that was almost closed with a kind of blue plastic uh, fabric um, closing the window, it was open and there were an old Arabic guy selling a couple of vegetables, but that was super strange because there were like maybe a tomato and, and two mince bouquets and a cabbage. Some, I got this story, I love it so much. Some customers, when I opened and they first came, said like, there were a cabbage at the beginning of the winter. And as he never sold it, he was getting right off the like um, uh, the, the, the damaged leaves one by one so at the end of the winter the cabbage just ended like um, a Brussels sport like. <laughs> <laughs> that's I love the story <laughs> so n not a lot of activity like. so finally he left the shop maybe a couple of years before I took it I don't know exactly what happened but I was passing by, I said, oh my god, this is beautiful. There were some marbles furniture everywhere, like the tails on the walls and the, this beautiful uh, ground. And I was so dreaming about it that I've never imagined that it could be mine one mm -hmm. day, you know. So I, had, I focused on two other projects. Finally, it didn't work. And one day, I just passed by, biking, on a Sunday morning, I will remember. Uh, and there was this real estate sign on the window, so I jumped off my bike. Like I just uh, took my phone and gave the call on a Sunday morning. But the guy was at the office because he was back from Hong Kong, so jet lag, so I don't know, like blah blah blah. But I just for the audience in America, Sundays are not generally a work day in yeah, France. Sorry. Just for context. Yeah, exactly. So that was just this chance, like, and I had the visit the day after. And, and it worked. Like. And how long from you acquiring the space to when you opened it? 
that was the last day of August, and we opened on uh, just before Christmas. Oh, so not that long. No, not that long. Very it's quick. Been really quick. Yeah. And what's interesting here is that it's not a bar; it's no. a wine shop. It's a wine shop. Yeah, because uh, France is complicated for that, but. No, which is cool is that you can do both. I've heard that in the US you have to choose between it's being a, 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 a bottle shop, a wine shop, or a bar. Sorry. But here you can do both, but you can't get any bar license everywhere. It's kind of tricky to get some new one when you create a new place. So I'm coming from hospitality, so that was complicated to me just to create a shop where people are, would have like just come pick up a bottle and leave so um, this cava manger thing because in France we have this famous cava manger possibility uh, became the best idea for the for the place so I can welcome people for for a glass and a small, like something to eat. Also. And the food here is interesting because you're not formally trained as a cook and you never wanted to present it that way. So what is the idea behind the food you can get here and what type of thinking goes into the dishes that you serve? Mm, it's based on the fact that you... I mean, I'm, 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 I have so much respect and admiration for all those guys or girls, sorry, they are real cooks, chefs, and, but you can also just feed people with some good stuff, even if it's not your real job or your real uh, talent. So I discovered that through like few experiences and um, I remember something really important to me has been one of the last uh, Burrata that I get at Pierre Jancou, Vivant place, with just some um, like aromatic flowers and a good olive oil. It has been something really important to me that made me think I can feed people even if I'm not a cook or a chef or even if I've never, um, even if I, oh, sorry. <laughs> it sounds- it sounds very much like the way that your mother served you and the type of way that she prepared yeah. food for the family. Yeah, maybe that this is, yeah, maybe it, it came back from somewhere further than what we think. But so, and that was the, the good way to set all my ideas and all my envies together too. And what does a typical food offering or a menu for any evening consist of? Um... There is some charcuterie and some cheese because that's pe- that's what people want when they drink some wine. That's the classic offer. So you, it's quite hard to get rid of it. So I try to have a couple of charcuterie and a couple of cheese that I change as often as possible. Um, then the terrine became a classic because it's a chef. He's got this restaurant, Le Repère de Cartouche. So he's supplying a few... Uh, terrain for some other restaurants and one day he suggested me to do run recipe that would be only here like the special for La Bivette so now he's doing that for me I can like um, 
I have to, to, to keep going with it. And it's delicious and, and it became a classic and people want it. I mean, you, you can't come here and not have a piece of terrain. So I try to, I love to put, I, I love to do some small things. So I do some pickles, like with the seasons. I, so there is some cherries, like for now, but could be like some, could be anything. I love to put everything in vinegar, actually. But, <laughs> so there is this terrain, there is the beans, like the famous beans <laughs> that drive me crazy. <laughs> I mean, but, you have to give the people what they want. They're just a can. Like, <laughs> I don't understand. Like everybody arrived here and they're like, can we get a, the beans, like the famous beans? And it's just, I mean, this is beautiful, but, but which is cool is that those beans, that they became like so popular and I can't explain why. But which is cool is that it's totally the quintessence, um, you know, you have the same word in English. Uh, of what I want to do here. Open a can, a very good one. The product inside is like beautiful, but just open a can, put a couple of things on it, and that's it. This is what I, what I can do, like nothing more. Last, so, last question. Okay. Um, in the years that you've been open, how has the wine list evolved? What has changed, what has remained? What have you learned? How has it grown with your education and, and opening this place? Um, I, <laughs> I met some people, um, so I, I built some special relationship too with some winemakers that I love to work with. So maybe after four, more than four years, I'm not anymore in searching some new things all the time because my deep relationship with some of them is more important. So, but at the same time, the selection is moving all the time. You have a new vintage of something, then you have... So people never, never get bored. That's not the problem. And also the natural aspect of it has been maybe made more by the clients than me because sometimes you realize that people's expectation drives you somewhere too like I, I don't know how to explain that exactly but and also maybe one of the one of the uh, particularity of it is that I, I try to focus uh, on some on the young generation if I could say so so I always want to drink a glass of uh, of René Moss or Thierry Puzla because when it's good it's fucking good so I don't want to act like I, I don't care about like the the guy that started and I'm full of respect for them because they started and so this is because of them that we're doing what we're doing today so that's not the point but also trying to share the work of uh, some new guys like they're less known they're starting slowly like a first vintage won't be perfect but so charming at the same time so yeah that would be a balance between all that 
Well, thank you for letting us come in. My pleasure. On the afternoon. <laughs> it was great talking with you. Where can people find you, social media, follow you, come visit you? How do they get a hold of you? Instagram? Yeah, could be. Or come here, and that's the best way. Perfect. I mean, Instagram is a bit virtual. Like, so yes. The best way is to come here, definitely. Perfect. Well, we're going to take a quick musical break from the archives, and then we'll be back with the second half of Snacky Tunes. Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, 
I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Annie Hart in studio. Hi, Annie. Hi. Some of you might remember Annie from being on here many, many years ago with her band Avoa Simone and also did Dinner with the Band with us and was on the second time and just has been around. We've hung out, known each other for a long time. It's always nice to see you. It's always nice to see you, too. No one can see you shrug on air, though. You're just kind of shrugging. I was curtsying. Oh, curtsying. Uh, uh, Annie, you put out a record this weekend. I did on Friday. Well, my record label put it out. Yeah, but you had some small part in it. I did a little bit. I, like, did all the legwork, (laughs) wrote it, recorded it, had it ready. Who did the artwork? I did the other part. Oh, okay. But, but the photograph was taken by my friend's daughter, who I think is like 15 now or 16. Did she get paid? I paid her $100. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Do you think she put it into like a savings bond or just blew it like straight out? I really hope she did. I hope she like just was just like, boom, savings bonds. Or maybe she framed it, which also has no value. Or then you can give her like a fake $100 bill. Well, I sent her a check. I didn't even check if it was cash yet. Oh, Got a balance with She's books. also modeling. Her name is Sophie Jurowitz. She's so beautiful. So oh. she's, I think she's got some money in the bank. I don't know if my $100 means anything. Right. She just wanted to say she did an album cover. She's the best. I love her. I've known her since she was two. When did you start working on this record? I started working on this record when I was, seriously, um, when I was pregnant with my daughter, who is now two and a half. And what was the desire? This is your first solo record. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything had before been written with uh, Erica and Heather. Where did these songs start to come from? Or where did you feel that these were going to be placed in your canon of work? <laughs> That's a really good question. I, I kind of felt just an impetus from being pregnant to... Well, okay. So well, before that, I, I kind of, since I was about six or seven when I got my first small Casio keyboard or knockoff Casio keyboard. I think I had the Radio Shack version uh, for Christmas one year. I've been writing songs since then. And then I've just constantly been doing it, always doing it, never stop. I'm always thinking of songs. I'm always thinking in song. It's kind of annoying to be around me because I'll be like, time to tie your shoes. And um, uh, and then... <laughs> sorry, that's not... It's <laughs> <That's> really funny. <laughs> That's not, I just, made, that was improvised. Um, so your kids are like, no, it's not mom. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we have a different song that I'm not going to get into that my mother wrote. But anyway, so, so I kind of always write songs and I, you know, I, some of these for this album, I was kind of thinking they would be for Ova Simone. And then that kind of like took a turn when Heather moved to California and Erica wanted to focus on her family. And, um, so I, Actually, it was Heather who was, and Keith Murray from We Are Scientists, who he just, we just heard two songs ago, who I actually dedicated this album to them because they both were really angry at me when I would play them demos and I'd be like, I don't know, I guess I'll just listen to it on my iPod. And they were like, first of all, nobody uses iPods anymore. Second of all, um, (laughs) you have to play these for the world. You're really doing the world a disservice by keeping them to yourself. And they literally were just, 
sending me angry text messages all the time telling me that I really needed to focus on this. So I did it. And I'm really glad I listened to them because I'm happy with how it turned out. And how has the writing process evolved going to a solo project, but also evolved as becoming a mother and just, you know, you're thinking about songs or your lyric approach or the, the way in which you craft the, the music? I think I think you'll hear this from almost every parent is that once you have children, you never understand how much free time you had before and your efficiency. I've always been obsessed with efficiency and doing things in an efficient manner and a logical order, like getting the Thanksgiving dinner on the table in the right order is really I'm good at that. Um, but I think like once you have kids, you're just like boom, forced to create in these bizarro pockets of time. So you have like when the kids are napping, you have like. I do my vocal exercises every day when the kids are having their breakfast, you know, that kind of thing where it's like, they're distracted. I'm just going to go ahead and and do this. And you kind of like make things work with what you have. Do you think, I mean, we always talk about how constraints always breed creativity. And when you have so much time, nothing ever happens, but Mm -hmm. it's in those moments. So do you feel that the creative output became even bigger because you had those constraints versus when you didn't have kids? Or do you think it was a different type of creative output? put or or how did that evolve and change well there's definitely a drive it's kind of like if you're not creating in those pockets of time and you're like me where you're a creative person and you don't really have like a nine to five day job what would you think of yourself if you weren't I mean I'm a workaholic and I'm very into creating and like we're all gonna die let's make stuff let's go for it and so I think you know you just like I'm definitely driven by that like what am I doing in this pocket of time am I vacuuming the floor or am I going to listen to some beautiful synth sounds it's vacuuming the floor right <laughs> my floor is so clean I actually wrote a song recently about clean floors but whatever not on the record though no it's I think it's going to be on the next record but it's kind of I'm so morbid it's like if you have clean floors what have you accomplished with your life it's basically the crux of the song. But I mean, if you enjoy clean floors, you've accomplished a lot because you've made yourself happy. But me, I don't care. And you would, and you recorded this record in the basement when the kids were asleep. Yeah. So mostly a headphone record masterpiece. You know, <laughs> <laughs> definitely a lot of headphones, but I don't want to brag, but we have a house. So the kids are on the second floor and I'm in the basement. So we can, you know, there's monitors. There's monitors, there's time, you know, low, low volumes, so you low don't wake the kids. So was, the other day I tweeted, I was like, I'm doing this new recording project, and I was like recording tambourine for it really loud, and I was like, oh my god, the baby's sleeping, and I'm just like jamming this tambourine at top volume. They'll appreciate it. She slept through it. Can we hear a song? Yeah. Do you want to hear a moody song about my um, second boyfriend ever? Of course. <laughs> Maybe he's listening. Ugh. What? Shut it, I could tell that you were 
Talk about this record being created in the public eye. Why did you choose that approach, and and how public is public? Well, I mean, I guess you saw that I wrote that on Instagram the other day. I did. Well, I thought it was interesting. Uh, well, because I guess it's it relates a lot to what I was saying before, which is how, for me, it's very natural to create. When I was a child, I was homeschooled, and I had a lot of free time, and I would play piano and just play for myself, play by myself, play chord progressions that I enjoyed hearing. And um, no matter how many times people told me, oh, like, or would sit and listen, or tell me it was great, I just couldn't even comprehend that it was on par with anything that a professional or somebody else who was quote unquote good would, would put out there. And, um, and I, and I still, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like I waffle between the feelings, you know, you, I listen to pretty weird music that like, you know, a lot of people are making in their bedrooms that it means a lot to me. And it's not necessarily like the world's greatest music, but to me, it's the world's greatest music. And uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's hard for me to find that kind of like, that this is my talent or this is what I'm good at. Like, I feel like I used to volunteer a lot washing dishes in soup kitchens. And I kind of feel like that that is like a much more useful place for me to put my energy and time. But like, unfortunately I'm kind of changed to the house with the kids and whatnot. So I can't like do stuff like that all the time. So like even just putting out what I've made, it's very revealing, especially like these are a lot of these are literal songs about, my literal life and like when it was not so good and like even just thinking about those things and maybe crying on stage because it's still really raw for me like that's weird thing to do with your time did you think it was maybe easier when there were two other people on stage and you could say oh that song's not about me it's about the other one (laughs) and this one it's it's all about you because there's no one else to deflect it from um you know it's funny like a lot of Owasimone songs the ones that I wrote some of them were just like complete 
fictional tales that you know mountain goat style kind of like here's a place that i'm thinking of and this is a scenario that might have happened there um but what was really different is being on stage and like I'm with these like incredible leggy, beautiful singers swaying and I can just like be like the freak in the corner and be feel totally natural doing that because I'm like, well, nobody's looking at me. And so <laughs> lately, I don't know if I would agree with that, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> but when I first started playing, I was so a solo. I was so embarrassed. I had like several like totally choking, just staring at the keyboard being like, what's a black key and what's a white key? Wait, what? Oh my God. What's the meaning of life? Ah! Like in the basement of cake shop. A chord, you say. <laughs> yeah, a chord? <laughs> a chord? Does it start with a K? So why do you think that these songs had to be all true narratives or from your past as opposed to a, a, a fictional place and a time? Yeah, I, I kind of... I mean, there's a lot of things that happened <laughs> that led me to this place. One is that a friend of mine who um, encouraged me all the time and, and was kind of like, not a literal slap in the face, but like would get a little angry when I said like, oh, whatever, whatever I make is just garbage anyway. And who would, he would, he OD'd, he died. And it really impacted me and that like I should kind of like honor his vision of me. So that was one thing. Sorry, I lost track of the question. <laughs> Can we hear another song? Yeah. What are you going to play for us? Um, oh, but this is the other thing I was going to say is that I felt like from that place, like I became, I got <laughs> kind of into like Buddhist philosophy and meditating. And I kind of felt like I started coming at this place of forgiveness to your past self where like I had not, I was like always beating myself up and like from here. So like a lot of these songs I'm writing about are kind of like dedicated to my younger self, like don't beat yourself up over this. You were 20 years old. Of course you dated a stalker. That's fine. Like that's cool. It's done. You didn't, you know, you did the best you could. Um, so this is a song called, I don't want your love. <laughs> and this guy wasn't a stalker, but this guy was not treating me right. And I've come to this place where like, I deserve to be treated right.
One of the cooler moments of summer, sitting on my couch, <laughs> watching TV, a certain show by the name of Twin Peaks, <laughs> who do I see but a band that I thought broke up many moons ago, Alvar Simone. We were on hiatus. You were on hiatus. Also, we're still, we, one day. One day. You're going to see us again. I can't wait. I still know all the lyrics. Aww. But also... Uh, didn't really kind of put two and two together when you wrote me, like, I'm going to be in L.A. for the Twin Peaks premiere. And I was like, that's cool. She's a fan, aren't we all? Um, how did that come about? What is the story behind you getting on the show and, and, and being at the Roadhouse? Yeah. So I don't know if you know this, but I think one of the biggest reasons that Ofwasimon became popular, I mean, we already had kind of a following at that point, but David Lynch is a huge Ofwasimon fan. Unknown to me. Oh, he's like, there's. All, he went on like a speaking engagement after his book came out, Catching the Big Fish, and he would just tell people, hey, you know what you should do? You should listen to this band. He literally did that all the time. It's amazing. I mean, you can't beat that. And, you know, he's became a friend of ours and just is just like such a positive force in our lives that, um, you know, we always like quietly were waiting for the phone call, but we thought like maybe one day we would compose a song or something for a movie, you know? Right. Or just have a song placed in a, in right. a movie, right. just, which would be amazing. Anything, anything. Sure. We would just like take it. But, you know, it came out that he was working on Twin Peaks and I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. Kind of that kind of feeling. And then. I got, I remember I was on the subway right when the subway got internet and, uh, I was like, I was with somebody and I was like, Oh my God, you're never going to guess what's going to happen. And then I told this person who like 
I know, but he's not like one of my closest friends. And then I re- kept reading the email and it was like, whatever you do, do not tell another living human that this is happening. And I was so like, you murdered, oh. so you murdered that person. I, he's no longer with us. Oh, that's so unfortunate. <laughs> he was a really nice guy. I'm sure he was. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I kept it a, a huge secret. I didn't even tell my parents. And when, when did you record it? We recorded it. Oh, I'm really bad with time, but okay. I'm pretty sure I did it about uh, like last September, last fall. And was the setting that all the bands came in at one time or, or how was it How was it recorded? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm sure they must have done some others, but I know they had like two days booked at the Roadcast where they like filmed everybody in a row. And I feel really bad. His David's assistant was like, you girls, you're just like, like family, you should stay and just like, you can totally listen to all the bands. Julie's coming down, blah, blah, blah. And like, we saw a couple of bands and we we're like, we have, we've got places to go. So we left and then I'm like, Nine Inch Nails were there and I missed it. Eddie Vedder. I'm, I'm kicking myself. Eddie Vedder. Did you get to watch any of the Chromatics? We saw the Chromatics. They were amazing and they're they're super nice people. And how did the song selection go? I mean, it was interesting, the, the songs, I mean, super deep from your collection. It makes a lot more sense now because he's such a fan. But did he give any explanation why he chose the songs that he did? You know, we filmed... Oh, God. We filmed Flammable, Lark, and I think we filmed Sad Song. We filmed the third song from Bird of Music. And um, that was the album that we were touring on when we we did this event with him in Barnes and Noble. And I think that he he like got married to one of the songs on the record. Like, I think he just really loves that record. (laughs) So I don't know. I think that those two really fit the vibe. No, of course. I mean, they totally I mean, and as you whoever watched the show, the lyrics of all the performances actually tied into the episode and to mm-hmm. the other thing. They weren't just here's a cool band playing a cool song that actually fit the theme. So I was curious just how deeply he went over was a conversation. He said, Do you have any songs like this? Or they asked for those songs. No, he knew the songs. He just asked for those songs. That is incredible. Moving uh, moving on. I didn't realize there was such a cult around him. Now that I was in the show, everybody's just like, (gasps) like the texts on the phone. I think I wrote you and Erica. um, I was like, holy shit! I can't (laughs) believe this is insane. Like, like just totally surprised. Not surprising, but just like this is incredible. Yeah. And then once it started, like, oh, this makes total sense. Yeah, it, it it didn't make sense. Yeah, I guess I'm part of culture. You are part of culture. <laughs> so the record Impossible Accomplice is out. Yeah. And you are going on tour mm-hmm. in October. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm playing um, the Brooklyn Night Bazaar opening for Wild Pink and Matt Pond PA on the 25th. There's a song by Matt Pond PA called Summer is Coming that is one of my all-time favorite songs. Oh, I it, hope he plays it. Do you want to come? I'll put you on the list. Perfect. Okay. I would love to. Great. <laughs> if he said no on air, audience, I would have been really mad. I'm busy. Yeah, I'm busy. Do you say the 24th? <laughs> I got plans. So there, and then, but then you're going east, and then you're going west. Well, yeah, I'm kind of like not doing the east coast of America. I'm going to, I'm playing Margate to this festival by the sea in UK, and then playing London, I'm playing Paris, and then I'm opening up for this band, The Deers, and we're going to Oxford, Manchester, Newcastle, Glasgow, and then I'm coming to California, so I'll be in LA. San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and then Whidbey Island, which I never heard of, which is apparently like a magical island. I'm assuming there's unicorns. By the way, in Margate, there is a fish shack that's been there since like the 1950s that is absolutely incredible. You're the first American I've ever talked to who knows where Margate is. I did a day trip there. Ah, 
It's all, really everybody cool. from London is moving there. All my friends live there now. So many people. Well, Stephen from Moshi Moshi, our who mutual we both friend, has a house out there. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to make sure that we have time to get one more song in. But Boom. where can people get the record? Oh, find it, stream it, follow you on Instagram, see you, all the stuff. Oh my God, I'm on Instagram at Annie Hart for sure. F O R spelled out. Somebody asked me that the other day. Um, yeah, it's on Spotify. It's not available on vinyl or CD. It's only available on cassette from my Bandcamp page if you need a physical one. Um, but you can get it digitally at, you know, iTunes, whatever, Amazon. One of them's going to be mad I didn't give them a shout out. Google Play. They'll be fine. Deezer. Deezer, they're all fine. <laughs> what is Deezer? It's not big in the States, but it's big <laughs> everywhere else. Okay. Uh, I want to give a warm thank you to Camille from La Bouvette. Uh, please make sure that if you are in town this week to check out her events at Mission Chinese and Achilles Heels. If you like this and you want to hear more Snacky Tunes episodes, please go into our archives. And if you want to, leave us a nice little review and give us five stars. Uh, we will be back next week with a brand new episode of Snacky Tunes. Annie, what is the name of the song you are going to take us out on? Breathing Underwater. Perfect. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next week.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.